thank you so much for being with us. My name is Tracy Siska. I'm executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. I'm also a host for our Facebook Live show. With us today is journalist and author, or I think soon to be author, Jason Cherkis, who's a freelance journalist and wrote what I think is one of the most amazing pieces I have read on covering crime and violence in a city. He was talking about covering it in DC, but I think it's applicable everywhere. Um, just for audience view and Jason know, uh, Jason's knowledge, um, I'm a bit, I've been for a long time um, a strong critic of how crime and violence gets covered um, across mediums from television to print. Um, and I don't think it's improved sadly through online. I think we're far more, far too fascinated with body counts and numbers than we are reporting on root causes. Um, and um, this, uh, this article that he wrote for Columbia Journalism Review, which I'll have Jason talk about today, really, really hit home with me. And I think everyone should read it. It'll be embedded in our website when this gets posted and on our YouTube channel. Jason, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the for appreciating the story. I'm glad that we have this in common and that you've you've had the same some of the same criticisms I've had. So, just so our audience knows, can you tell us a little bit about your background as a journalist, so we can get context about what you're talking about? Sure. Um, I graduated from college in the mid '90s and went right to. I kind of grew up in Washington D.C. and in the suburbs, and I came home and just started to freelance for the Washington City Paper. I pretty quickly uh, became one of their two beat, beat reporters for the Police Beat. Uh, started that in 1997 and was the copy reporter for roughly off and on, basically for 10 years, um, maybe probably longer if I want to be for a minute. Uh, and so I, that was my beat. I mainly covered uh, what I just whatever I wanted, basically. So it wasn't you know, the crime blotter kind of coverage that you might see in a daily paper. It was really looking at um, the sort of excesses of the drug war, uh, police brutality cases, um, excessive force, uh, bad searches were pretty common that I wrote about, um, or just drug busts that were um, were iffy at best and based on no evidence, those kinds of things. Bad warrants, um, you know, all the things that we see today I covered. Um, and then I, later I started to cover more true crime aspects, more, uh, you know, unsolved uh, cold cases, um, you know, mur other murders, those kinds of things as well. And then obviously the sort of interdepartmental stuff and just sort of how they police the so-called bad apples, that kind of thing. So I think you talked about it a little bit, but what, what would, if you had to name one of them, what was the major difference between you and like a police beat or crime beat reporter and a daily newspaper? I had to, <laughs> I didn't have to really make any pretenses about um, thinking what the police were doing was was good. Um, I had to be, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't about objectivity, it was about truth, you know, and so I didn't have to uh, show up at ribbon cuttings. I didn't have to, I wasn't going to go to a press conference where they put drugs on the table and say, we made this amazing drug bust. I didn't have to be friends with the, you know, the officials. Um, I hated all that stuff. Um, my main sources starting out were uh, defense attorneys, uh, 
especially for juvenile justice, uh, those kinds of public defenders in that in that realm. Um, civil attorneys uh, were big, um, but also just, you know, I, I would get some names of cops. People would say, oh, these guys always show up. They always, they're always, people are always talking about the same four, four guys. And so I would investigate, you know, those names. You know, I would do public record searches. There was a great guy in the public defender service who just had a file cabinet that he kept of all the police complaints. It was just like a hobby that he, he didn't have to do it, but he did it and he made it accessible. Um, nowadays that wouldn't, that's a little bit harder to find. Uh, and so, and then there were other people who were sort of obsessed with the police and would give me tips, you know, here's a, you know, another name of a bad cop, those kinds of things. Does that answer so, your question? It does. It does. And I, it, um, do you consider, or do you think, have you seen, I think there's been a shift at some point. I'm not exactly, I can't pinpoint exactly when it happened, yeah. but you described yourself as being on the police beat. Right. And now I think it's more when you talk about urban reporters, specifically we have it in Chicago, they consider themselves crime reporters. Yeah. I, and, I really came into it. Good. No, I was going to oh, say, what, what do you consider the difference? Well, part of it was is that the other person who did the B with me, you know, he was more into the, I think he was more into the crime stuff. I mean, he was a good reporter um, and covered that. I also fell into it kind of backwards. I first started writing about police getting, you know, in trouble, and that just sort of snowballed into other stories. It, um, I never wanted to write, I, I never wanted to be the person that knocked on the door of somebody you know, who's, who just lost a loved one and say, you know, how do you feel about your son dying? Um, but it's not to say, as I point out in the story, I had to do those things too. Um, I did those things. Um, but early on, especially, uh, it was sort of also the height of all weeklies. So our papers were like 130 pages, you know, each week. Um, you could take six weeks or in my case longer, cause I was bad with deadlines but you could take a longer time to, to really investigate something. So, you know, there was uh, my first cover story. I was way out of my depths. I did a piece like, you know, dirty dozen worst cops. And my editor at the time was this guy, uh, David Carr. He was a New York times reporter eventually and, and quite amazing. Um, you know, he, I made him my list of my bad cops and he just, he said, why don't you just do the, the one cop who killed two, you know, who killed a kid. Like, just do that guy. The other ones are, you know, nothing. And so that was the beginning of, you know, my interest and also how I learned how to do the job. That was my first story was on a cop who had killed a kid, a teenager. So in your, in your piece in uh, Columbia Journalism Review, you talk about your, your notebook and camera uh, being something that you considered an all-access access pass to anywhere you wanted to go no matter how pro private. What did you mean by that? Um, I meant that like a lot, like, I guess there's a couple things. Like it's sort of this adrenaline boost and especially for somebody who, you know, I'm not great at parties all the time and I'm kind of an introvert, but when you have a notebook, you have a purpose. You know, I would go into neighborhoods that, you know, could be considered, you know, have a history of violence. And people would say like, what the fuck are you doing here? Part of my language. And I would say, here's, here's my notebook, I'm here to do this story. And oftentimes that would be enough. Um, sometimes people would ask for ID. Once I somebody asked me, 
for ID and I was really stupid and I showed him my press, my MPD police press pass. It says police department on it. And that's all they saw. They were like, you're a cop. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, no. And I explained the fine print, but it was terrible. So I never, I ended up never using the press pass. I just put it away. And so I felt for a long time, the, the notebook gives you a passport to places and license to be there, like a purpose. You're there to cover something. Um, in the, in the, in so in, in many cases, you're um, going to a neighborhood. You, you're parachuting in. You know, you're going into a neighborhood, and it's up to you to either learn as much as you can about that neighborhood in a real way, in a in a really concerted effort, or to just pick and choose what you want and then leave. I mean, we see that that's in not great reporting. As people parachute in. They paint with a broad brush about a neighborhood or a community, and then they leave and they never come back. Um, you know, I like to stick around. So in a lot of cases, I would show up and I would just be there for a month. And I love that those are the stories that I love the most. But getting back to your point, I think in a lot of cases too, it, the, the, the notebook, you make also the assumption that it's always okay to show up, to get in somebody's face, to uh, you know, interrupt somebody's horrible moment to ask them questions that they may not want to ask or or be you know be asked, and a lot of times it's there are moments where you know you feel like you are not so much violating someone's privacy, but you are there's something <laughs> undignified about doing what you're doing. One time, this guy told me, you know, I I found tracked down this guy and I. Wanted to, you know, I showed up at a basketball court where he was, and he said, why don't you just leave me alone? And I just thought that was like a really perfect answer to how he was feeling. I was like, I can't respond to that other than, you're right, I'm going to leave you alone. You know, I think in a lot of cases, though, reporters don't. I, I definitely saw that in, um, I covered the massacre at uh, West Virginia University when they had the... Uh, West Virginia University? No, I'm sorry. Why am I blanking on this? Virginia, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech. Yeah. Yeah, in Blacksburg. And, you know, I was really late. Um, we don't normally cover Blacksburg. And the editor just said, you're going. Uh, it, had, it was the late afternoon of the massacre, and I drove down. I got there pretty late. Showed up at the crime scene. No one was there, but sat around and did what I had to do. And then went to where the families had gathered. It just seemed very clear that at a over the course of a few days, the university was sort of fed up with all the cameras. You know, there was people in mourning. It seemed intrusive in some ways. Um, but getting, I, I think I'm answering your question about just, it can, you can get the feeling of you're overstepping your bounds. It also gives you this license to just feel like you can be a jerk and get away with it. And I feel like, in the lead of the story where I'm at the crime scene, that was a clear incident. I mean, it was the first thing I thought about when I was writing the essay, when I had to come up with, you know, how was I gonna start the piece? That was my first thought was that moment because it seemed very clear that I had overset my bounds and that in a way it was very symbolic of crime reporting. You go in, you record uh, someone's tragedy in stark terms and then you get out and you don't, you're just there to, capture someone's worst moment or, you know, and then leave. Yeah, I was, uh, I was an intern many, many 
God, it seems like a lifetime ago, but uh, 26 years ago on a television station's news assignment desk. And uh, at that time, the the new uh, post office there building in Chicago collapsed, and a bunch of the guys got hurt. A couple died. A couple were at the hospital. I was outside the hospital on a live truck. Some of the reporters doing the live shot. And we get a call, and they're like, the fan, one of the people died in the hospital. One of the workers just died. His family's leaving through the back door. Take the other camera, and you got to go sit in back. And get a, you got to get them on camera talking about it. And I'm sitting in the Ooh. back of Cook County Hospital shaking. Right, I'm 22 at the time or something. And the cameraman turns to me because I do not want to do this. And I can't, for the life of me, see the newsworthiness of this. Yeah. Right? And he goes, what, 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 what's wrong with you? Because my whole body was shaking. And he's like, I'm like, I don't want to do this. He goes, we're not getting out of this car unless another camera truck pulls up and pulls out their camera and will get us in their shot with us sitting in the car is the only reason we're getting out of this car. This is not news. We are not doing it. They yeah. can walk unless they come yeah. and knock on our window. We're not getting out. And um, I saw him many years later and at a Starbucks of all places and thanked him for that. But it was it was this I couldn't get over just this all out fetish fever that you had to get those quotes from those people right at that time. And somehow yeah. there was value in it. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I've definitely been in moments where I have thought, what did I just do? And like, what was the or lately, I feel that way, too. It's just like, what's the value in pushing somebody one way or the other? Or, you know, really pushing it where you're asking, uh, you know, to interview somebody in their worst moment over and over again, that kind of thing. All right, so I want to switch to, um, I found several quotes in here, amazing. But this one, I'm going to read it. The allure of the beat was powerful. It was exciting to do something that appeared to be vaguely dangerous and righteous. What did you mean by that? Um, it meant that there were, I, I guess what I felt was not a lot of people um, would, would do the beat because it was hard. Um, cops were generally didn't like to talk. Uh, it was hard to navigate the police department in that way. Um, you never got help. You rarely got help from the public information office. The guy was pretty notorious. Um, he was no also a notorious um, sexist. So any woman that called got you know full on flirtation, that kind of thing. Um, oh, he was often never at his office. He was always outside uh, at the coffee shop across the street. But um, so cops were pretty belligerent in terms of talking to the press. There was this code, you know, to not talk to the press. Um, so it made stories hard to do. Um, also, you were doing reporting on, especially at the time when there were so many murders, that there was a lot of violence in the city. And so there was this impression that it can be dangerous work. It was rare for me. It was rarely, I rarely felt danger. I was mugged a couple times like in the course of reporting, like twice. Um, once early on, so d in, a, in such a dumb way that no one was sympathetic to me in the office. Everyone was like, you're ridiculous that you did this. I let a pimp in my car. It was so dumb. Anyways, <laughs> and then it was awful. And then um, it was only later I did a story about Marion Barry where I was in his neighborhood and that got a little dodgy with some people uh, there. Um, but... Uh, other than that, it wasn't too dangerous, but there was just the idea that it was, that it was possibly dangerous. There was an allure to that. Like, you know, um, I think mainly I was drawn to it because the stories were hard to do uh, and that I was learned early on 
that when you're in journalism and starting out, you don't want to do what everyone else is doing. You have to do the stories that are hard. Uh, and um, you get respect that way and you get the feeling of being needed in the office. Like, oh, you know, he's doing this really important work. I was really encouraged by the editors too. You get your cues from, you know, your bosses. And, you know, I definitely was supported by um, my editors at the time, David Carr, Eric Wemple, Michael Schaefer. They all supported the work and really wanted me to do it. So if they had said, we don't want you to do this anymore, I would have done something else. But, you know, they the feedback I was getting was positive too. So, and then the righteousness came with, Hey, you're, you're outing a bad cop. You get to say that cop killed that kid. You know, you get to write about these four cops that were, you know, brut brutalized a whole neighborhood for decades, you know, for a decade. There was something righteous about that. You weren't writing fluff pieces. Um, and all the stories were serious. All the stories had, you know, really big conflicts. So that okay. was the I know we talked, you talked a little bit about it earlier, but, um, you know, you talk about covering the drug war and the excesses of the drug war. I feel like yeah. little has changed. <laughs> I, you know, when people talk about Breonna Taylor's death and it was horrific, I don't think people, once again, we get to, we don't get to the root causes of anything. To me, that was a drug war death. They were yeah. merely going in that apartment and we don't know all the facts, but um, I think they're going to come out and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, but they were strictly going after evidence retrieval. Against yeah. the guy, yeah. right? There was evidence retrieval, right? It wasn't going to get someone violent. So they broke in someone's house at 1230 at night looking for drugs. Yeah. That was a complete drug war thing. But just so we can, um, what were the excesses that you were looking for, you know, at that time when you were covering things? Um, really bad. Like uh, there was a lot of bad searches, bad um, cavity searches. Um, in the open, people, there was a one cop who I wrote about a lot who would, um, ex, you know, pull a guy's pants down and, and, you know, root around in their, in their anal cavities for, for drugs. That's illegal. You can't do it. It's, can't, you just can't do that. And I wrote about that a lot. Uh, bad searches, those kinds of things. There was a search very similar to the Breonna Taylor one that I wrote about in, in one neighborhood where just they went to the wrong house, barged in messed everything up. I think they arrested the woman. They knew it was the wrong house at a certain point, And then they just carried it forward anyways. They just pretended like they were there. They were there for the right reasons. Um, wrote about that case. So there was a lot of those, those kinds of stories. Then, then there was just the, the jump outs, you know, uh, you have the, um, you know, stop and frisk. We have the jump out squads. And so I wrote a lot about those, um, just, you know, the, uh, the, you know, car, uh, police car runs into a runs to a corner. Everyone jumps out. They pat everybody down. It's humiliating. A lot of times, those ended in violence. Um, cops beating the crap out of kids. So that was a pretty common thing. There was a uh, there was one story I wrote about a lieutenant who who beat up a guy, you know, at one corner, and the other cops intervened. They they stopped him. Um, I wanted to write about that story actually in the essay. I just didn't have room for it because I didn't. When I reread the piece, I thought, and maybe we'll get to this part of it too, but just, it was so focused on the white cops, like doing the right thing and not on the victim. He's barely in the story. And I was like, that, that's the kind of story that I would have ripped, 
you know, last couple of years, like, cause I've seen that kind of story lately too, where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the profile of the white cop who, who does the right thing and stands, you know, won't shoot, you know, or won't beat up a guy and then gets in trouble. It's just a profile of that cop, you know, Oh, he joined the force, you know, after nine 11 or he has a dog, you know, all the, whatever mm-hmm. things that make them human. Mm-hmm. And I did the same thing. And I, I couldn't believe that I gave the, that the victim in the story had almost no agency other than being a victim. So um, that was one of the things that I thought was a shortcoming in the, in my reporting. Okay. Um, You talk about because you work for this alt weekly and you had this different uh, deadlines, um, you didn't have to rely on the cops for stories Mm -hmm. in that, that assumes if you flip that a little bit, that some reporters did have to rely on cops for stories. So yes. were those, right? So, so who were those? Not like who named them. I'm not interested in that, no, no, no. but like who were they in the sphere of journalism in DC at that time? Who are those? People? I mean, I think like, well, I mean, the daily paper, the post reporters, the post crime reporters, I mean, they probably had more than one, but the post crime reporters, uh, they had to file stories every day. Um, anytime that there was a shooting or a murder, it probably got a brief mention, in, you know, in the inside inside of the Metro desk. I mean, there were definitely times where I saw um, they'd have to cover, you know, PR events, you know, in a way that I would never touch. Um, I got, it's the same for the, you mentioned in the top um, electronic, you know, the sort of web-based media blogs and neighborhood um, listservs or, um, you know, newsletters, those kinds of things. Uh, they're they're even worse because they don't have they're, they're almost not journalism in a way, but I've seen them mm. to be far more uh, racist or just really taking it from the word of the cop and never questioning anything they say. So you would often go to a crime scene and you'd get kind of their version of events, and it may never you it would never be corrected if it was wrong. You know, I, I interviewed several police reporters for the for the story just to get a sense of what it was like now because I hadn't done it in a while. You know, and that's something that they grapple with. This isn't something that they take lightly, I think. I think that they don't want it to the beat to be so reliant on police sources or the guy at the public information office. Um, because they know that they're often wrong, especially with these shootings. Almost every time they're wrong. We um in Chicago there was a bit of a scandal after the um, Laquan McDonald murder where the, he yeah. got shot sixteen times by Jason Van Dyke. Well, what it basically got uncovered there, and there was some ripple effect in the media, but not nearly strong enough. And I think some reporters should have been relieved of reporting. Um, but they were yeah. going to the crime scene, and the person that would talk to them was the FOP, one of the FOP spokesmen, the police union spokesman, and he would somehow. Yeah miraculously come across the details and they would just take what he said as gold. And this was going on for multiple years. This FOP spokesman also happened to be the former police department spokesman for Chicagoans. His name is Pat Camden. You won't hear from him anymore, but that blew up. And what came out of it was when that finally the dash cam video got released and body cam video got released of that, of that shooting, it was a murder, and oh, by the way, everything Pat Camden said was a lie. And there yeah. was this ripple effect, and but it didn't 
it, there was very little and no ripple effect to the actual journalists that actually had yeah, that, bought his line unchallenged for multiple years. And then he said, well, I never said that I knew what happened. I just was collecting things I heard mysteriously, and he wouldn't tell you who he heard them from, mysteriously. I didn't say I ever had the facts. Right. So he was never pressed to even be to validate where he got his information from. And he was printed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times mm. and on the TV every night. It was just obscene. You bring up a great point, which is the presence of these police unions and their role in the in the journalism ecosystem. Oftentimes, if you're not going to be able to get a cop, you'll get somebody from the union. And that's where stories can go really sideways. I mean, when I was reporting, the union guys were so obviously, you know, making stuff up or being, you know, just defending their side in such a ridiculous way that you'd have to be you have to really be derelict in your duties as a journalist to quote them or even listen to them. Um, but in DC, there were reporters, not just at the daily, I wouldn't even think the daily would do, would, the daily never hardly ever fell for the union stuff. Maybe the editorial page might have, but not the daily reporters. But there was a guy who wrote for one of the, like a magazine. No, wait, no, he wrote, he had a column actually, I'm sorry, a column. And I would get an email from the FOP chief and I would just, you know, instantly put it in the garbage. And then the, the columnist would just rerun the email, like just, just wove it into a, made it into a column, like accepting their story whole cloth without making a single follow-up phone call it appeared uh, to, to check facts. I think oftentimes one of the main issues with crime reporting is time, is you don't have a lot of time to, to make a follow-up call to check uh what the union sources might say or what the police might say. There just isn't a lot of time, um, especially now, because story people don't have to, people can't wait even a day to run them. They'll, they'll write them up in an hour and then it'll be online. I spoke at a journalism class at Northwestern University's Medill School several years ago with the editor mm -hmm. of the breaking news section of the Tribune's website. And he got up and he talked about how his job was all about having, uh, they, they, they're there to tell people stories. And that's all he was talking about. And I got up and yeah. I have a master's in criminology and I finished all my PhD classes. But I got up and I said, if you are going to be like him, then I'm going to hate you as much as I hate him. Your job is not to tell a Whoa. story. Your job is to inform the public and challenge everything everyone tells you. Criminologists, we hate the media. Why? Because you can't, in crime reporting especially, you can't do anything right unless you stumble into it. That, what do you mean you're there to tell stories? You're, you're a check on power. I mean, it's something hopefully all journalists have learned over the last four years of this administration, the attack yeah. on journalism. I couldn't believe that he said it. And here's another thing that just, this made me sick, and it gets to what you've been talking about. The breaking news section of the Trib would often call the families of the victims of violent crimes, mostly murders, and they would often get to them before the police did. And he said, what we do is we call up and say, have you gotten a call? And I was like, and I asked him like, why, how many people can possibly be concerned with, unless it's some super high profile person, any individual yeah. in Chicago or DC where we're both from now, if we pulled out any one person, unless there was some politician or some, how many people would possibly care that we need their name that quickly? 
that you have to polish yeah. them within minutes. Yeah. I said, and I told the class, I'm like, maybe a hundred. I don't think a hundred people would care that it was me. Um, I don't understand why you have to, and he didn't understand that. I go, that, that's gross. The story is about what happened, not the person's name, unless for some reason they're a politician or someone really famous. I didn't get it. And we just clashed the whole time. I didn't understand that way of thinking. What did he think storytelling was? Like, how, would, how did he define what storytelling was? Well, he basically said, you know, there's two sides of things and we need to get both stories. Oh, okay. And uh, a little bit, but basically, I mean, the way I look at it, and I'm trained as a journalist in undergrad, but that was a couple of decades ago. So I don't speak to be an expert, but it's like, no, you're speaking truth. You're supposed to inform the public and give them vital information and challenge the government and people in power with what they say and what they do. And to me, as far as I'm concerned, the people in power are the people with guns. (laughs) I mean, you bring up an excellent point. That's not like, you know, who are the people in power? And like for a lot of communities, that's the police. You know, it's not their city council member or their the mayor, you know, the head of the parks department. It's the cops. I mean, they're the one of some of the most powerful people in the city. I mean, you saw what happened with de Blasio when he challenged the police after yeah. um, after uh, Eric Gardner. Um, you know, they they intimidated him into, you know, basically Katie. they basically knew him <laughs> in a way. What? Yep. I said caving. Yeah, and so, yeah caved. And so um, it's interesting that reporters wouldn't see uh, the police beat as, as a beat that challenges power. I, in the, in the interviews I did with some of the police reporters, they did think that. Um, they craved stories about corruption. Um, the stories that bothered them the most were the ones that came from a, with a press release that they had to write up. And they did not have time to investigate further. Um, you know, one reporter got calls regularly from people that he had written about that had been charged with a crime and they weren't convicted of these crimes. And they would call and say, hey, why aren't you, can you write another story saying I didn't, I wasn't convicted of this thing that you accused me of? You know, this is with me forever. And um, that's why I put in the line in the story about uh, if you're gonna write about a case, see it through. Don't just write about the arrest, write about the whole case. Yeah, and that's that has always been a challenge for the media, right? They we kind of they only get to court and the follow ups or to see what happened in the really whatever they deem as important cases, right? And there's and, never that connection. And, well, and another police reporter pointed out the important cases in the big papers usually are just the white victims. Well, yes, and that brings the up victim, an interesting. The, the victims right. of uh, violence that are white, they get m- more substantial play in the paper. They get front page, they get, you know, uh, follow-up stories after follow-up stories. We, kn- we remember their names more because they're just written about more. Um, victims of, of violence that are black, we don't see as much. Um, and I, one of the reporters said, you know, that he had to make a case uh, and really argue strenuously for, for cases where the victims were black. We, we looked at, um, we have our justice media project and we scrape all the media websites to collect crime and violence coverage. And mm-hmm. we did, it started in 2011 and in 2013, the summer, we published a year long, uh, a review of a year of coverage on violence against women. 
and in the hundred in two hundred and three stories on sexual assault in the Trib and Sun Times, both in the paper and online, um, one hundred ninety five were on stranger rapes, which is exactly the opposite of how they occur in society. Which means they're informing fifty one percent of the population to be scared of things that rarely happen to them. But the other yeah. interesting thing is of the one hundred ninety five stories, thirty eight were of a white suburban girl from a really ritzy suburb who came down to the city, couldn't get into a, a, a venue to see a concert. Her friends went in, she stayed and waited outside for them and ended up getting raped. She was white, the offenders were black. Mm -hmm. And that had 38 stories between the two papers that year. Wow, that is a lot of coverage. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's yeah, basically 20% it, it, of the stories. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I, I've always been blown away by that. Okay, um, so you went back over some of your old stories and you said you were disappointed on, um, on things you didn't cover, things you, you didn't say, and assumptions you made. So what were the things that you didn't cover, things that you would have liked to have said, and what were the assumptions you made? Well, I think one of the things that, that I thought a lot about was um, how often I would write about systemic police violence towards blacks and black victims and never bring up racism. The, exp the explanation was always had to be a wonky answer. Not enough training, um, you know, the, the, their frustrations, uh, you know, really wanting to explain why they did this from the cop's perspective and not just say the word racism it was never uh, mentioned so that was one one thing the other assumption when i referred to assumptions it was a, a story about a cop who had killed a it was a black cop and he had killed a black victim a black man a, a college kid and uh there was just assumptions made like oh i can't believe a black cop did this and not understanding or that um the race of the of the cop doesn't really matter there's plenty of black cops that shoot unarmed black citizens. Um, so that was a, an issue, I think. Um, I didn't, I reread that story a bunch of times and just, it always hit me wrong uh, that we wrote it that way. Um, other assumptions, the other issues that I think are, that one that I touched on a little bit earlier was just not that the victims in my stories occasionally were um, nothing more than a settlement, you know, check and the, a list of their injuries in a way. We don't get the full weight of what happened to them. You know, whether not just the, that incident, but sort of what led up to it and sort of the trauma afterwards, how they were dealing with it um, afterwards. We don't know who they are really. Um, there was a, a fair assumption, uh, I think, made by, by others that they weren't, that who cares? You know, um, we're here to get the cops. We're making a case against these police officers. That's a different story. Well, another story sticks out just because it's always bothered me is I wrote about a, a guy who died in, in jail of a heart attack. He was playing basketball and he died of a heart attack while playing basketball. And there was all these uh, guards around him while he died. They didn't know what to do. They assumed he was having a seizure. They never, they, they blew all, every procedure uh, before he died. It was awful. They were basically standing over him laughing while he died. And, um, I had a section of the story about who he was and it was cut from the story because the editors, the editor at the time 
was uh, just assumed uh, it didn't matter. But I think it does matter. Uh, I think uh, knowing who somebody is and, and they're more than just that they died in jail, needlessly. But, you know, anyways, th those were some of the bigger issues that I had. Other assumptions I made were just that, you know, what the, that the, just some of the, the science behind what the police were doing, we've found to be pretty faulty. There's always, you know, there's been great reporting from uh, Pamela Kolov. Uh, Radley Balco is probably the leader in the field, I think. Um, one of the best reporters to ever cover the beat. Um, and they've shown that like things like blood splatter evidence, uh, fingerprint or bite marks, um, just bad science. And, you know, the same goes with excessive force. There was this rule about a knife. If somebody's within a certain distance, you, you have to shoot them because they're a threat. That's just based on nothing. Just, I remember talking to the police chief years later about this. And he's like, yeah, it's just bad science. Like, so I wish that I had investigated the science behind some of the assumptions the police were making. It's interesting. I mean, I want to know how much you ran, ran into this because listening to you talk, it popped up into my head. How much do you think journalists use coded language when they report to indicate whether or not the reader should care about the person who died? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I've, it definitely strikes me. I've definitely read stories where that it just hit me wrong that like we would never write about this person if they were, you know, middle-class white person, um, you know, descriptions of their flamboyant clothes or how they did their nails, those kinds of things. Um, I find to be really irritating, to be honest, that have nothing to do <laughs> with the story itself. Um, so I think that's pretty common is you get excited. It's the parachute problem. It's the treating the victims of police violence. Uh, it's kind of almost like a safari, you know, in a way. You also get into trouble with, um, maybe I'm veering a little bit off your question, but you mentioned this in it, uh, just at the beginning, it, it, it struck me as so true. Oftentimes in, in coverage of protests, reporters just count the number of arrests um, the, and and call it a day. Like it, the story becomes arrest counts. Oh, there've been 20 people arrested in this protest as if that's all that mattered. Not the stories of the protesters, why they showed up, risked their lives to protest. You see really great coverage uh, from others. Wesley Lowry is awesome, uh, awesome reporter at, at covering uh, protests and police violence. We all know that he won a Pulitzer. Uh, Joel Anderson's coverage in but with but in BuzzFeed um, around police uh, violence was awesome, uh, and around new, what happened in in uh, Katrina, the stories really stick out to me. Um, but I do think in the terms of daily coverage, just there are stereotypes that people fall into and are really not aware of or not conscious of, of that I think we have to be wary of. We have to get beyond physical description or the most flamboyant thing somebody might say to something more meaningful. That's all. We, um, I know in Chicago we have a big issue with the police just say if they want to discount a murder and they want to say coded that they're not going to solve it, it's gang-related. Yeah. It's gang-related. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. We have a big issue. I mean, all, a lot of urban centers are seeing increases in shootings uh, 
since the onset of the pandemic. Chicago is not alone. But the problem is, if we don't dig deeper to find out what actually happened there and to all the theirs that we get, it's we're incapable of coming up with solutions. Because if we're treating yeah. everything like gang violence and it isn't gang violence, yeah, that becomes an issue. But it gets scooped up by the media so quickly because yeah. they're writing well, these, you know. I do think that when we're talking about media, we have to talk about it in different ways. Like there's local TV media and then there's print journalism. By and large, print journalists know what you're saying. I mean, they don't want to cover, they want to get to something, the deeper truth. They want the, to spend more time on the story. They know that what they're printing isn't the full picture. They know that the family deserves more time. They know that the, there's a story behind that victim that needs to be told. I mean, that's, everyone lives to, every reporter who's like worth something lives to tell the bigger story, the deeper story. It's very rare that I've come across as a reporter who's like, you know, so unthinking and unfeeling that, that, that they don't care. I've definitely come across reporters that are more conservative, you know, and have, and make these assumptions that we've been talking about in stereotypes for sure. And that sucks. I mean, that's terrible. Uh, and that's a small percentage of reporters, but should be called out. I think the the other the bigger problem is in the TV coverage, gang related, show some show some lights, um, crime tape, and call it a day. Um, you're right. There's there's a deeper story, but I I've talked to some reporters at the Post who who cover this stuff, um, who have covered it in the past and cover it now, and they've all were hand wringing about all this stuff. Like they want to do more. They want. I think it comes down not to the individual reporter, but management. It's it's the editors, like that guy that you uh, debated at the at the university. He wasn't a reporter; he was a boss. So it really comes down from the top. Like, what are the expectations of the metro editor or the guy running the website? Um, that's more important in a way because they're the ones that are going to steer coverage, and if they don't expect more, they're not going to get more. They don't care about it they're not gonna, they're gonna i mean in my ex, my example that i said i wrote up a uh you know a part of a you know a section a whole section on this victim's life and what happened to him and um that wasn't my decision to cut it it was the editor's decision well right i you think know, that's all I, could do, the, all I could do at the time was call him an asshole, which i did <laughs> so there you go i i do agree that that's and it's the same way in all industries, I think, and specifically, uh, I mean, journalism is one of them, I think, where editors um, skate while the reporters take the heat for things, yeah. right? The one thing that I noticed, too, 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 in this sort of reckoning that we're having, that we're talking about, we've seen other stories where people are, uh, there's a, it was a great piece about the, there's like famous crime reporter in Miami Herald, kind of reckoning with what she did and how she wrote about the drug war in Miami. There's a, um, Wesley Lowry has written a great piece about objectivity versus subject, you know, in journalism and what that means. Um, you haven't seen editors really reckoning with what they've done, mm -hmm. with the assumptions that they've made and how they cover the drug war or how they cover crime now, how they manage the coverage of crime. You don't see that at all. When, when we did our report on sexual assault coverage or violence against women coverage, mm -hmm. we had an event at a city club in Chicago and there were probably like 200 people there or something. Mm -hmm. And the guy who now is the uh, editor of Crane's Chicago business, but he was the head yeah. of the Sun-Times news group. 
Jim Kirk, and he said at the event on stage, he said, yeah, we should do a better job covering these things, but don't ever forget, we know what gets clicks. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that I was like, makes oh, and I'm like, oh, yeah. So there is some purposefulness to what's going on there. Even more so than there was back in my day, back in my day as a, you know, in the all weekly world. I mean, when I wrote stories, we didn't know how many people read them. We didn't have to know. We never knew. You know, the only evidence we had was people picked them up or we could see someone reading it on the subway. But now everybody is aware of how their stories do. And that's my fear too, is younger reporters, they get validation, not because they wrote a good story necessarily, but because it got good clicks. That they're rewarded by the clicks, not, oh, you told a, oh, you did a well-told story. That being said, um, you know, the guy that said that at, the, at your party is an idiot because the deeper stories we have seen get good clicks. They do well. I mean, people do appreciate good journalism and investigative journalism. I mean, some of the bigger stories that we've seen in the last decade have been, you know, big explorations. Ta-Nehisi Coates on uh, reparations, uh, the big exposés on Harvey Weinstein. Those weren't small little 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 stories, you know. Um, Laquan McDonald's story is a big story, you know. And getting that tape was important. That was that was the other side of this kind of journalism. Is the the web has done allowed? Yes, it has the clicks and it's bad and it's awful, but it does allow for reporters to crusade, to keep going back to that story over and over again. Maybe in a way that print ministry wouldn't allow all the time, I mean, unless you're a columnist. All right, so we have a, one of the thing problems we have in Chicago is there's pressure on crime reporting and violence reporting from blogs and from what I call political operations that are masquerading as media, mm-hmm. who are just nonstop pounding crime coverage pounding violence coverage, pounding, you know, uh, reporting, making an article out of the, the stupid things people say at bond court. Right. And it's like, God, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of that would never even fly in a journalism class. Like we've moved mm-hmm. so far beyond mm-hmm. that, but this stuff is, is pounding every day and has, um, we now have a problem in Chicago where we have three, four, five, seven different major Twitter handles that tweet out the scanner live. Wow. And that, right. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, when I was at the WGN on the assignment desk and the news assignment desk, we listened to the scanner and it might lead us to a story, but we never made it the story. And you see (laughs) reporters from the daily papers um, and television news retweeting the scanner, the scanner. And it's like, that's, to me, that's not journalism. And you're actually hurting no. yourself by supporting what they do. Yeah. So I just want, yeah. if you have feelings about it, I'm interested to get your your take. It's interesting because we rarely listen to the scanner. Um, I mean, maybe towards the end I did more because I needed stories and stuff. But yeah, that's that. Then they get to that you know kind of cops mentality, that cops TV show thing, or that other one was it PD Live or something? Yes. Um, yeah. There's like this weird, but I think. Maybe, is it because, do you think in Chicago it's, it's, it's like this because 
you know, Trump and Republicans have made crime in Chicago so political that the conservatives in Chicago are pushing this? No, it's, it it's a mixture of um, the credibility of the police department on spinning stats and the justice system yeah. as a whole. There's very few people in the city that believe anything that comes out of them. And there's no trust in the political class in Chicago because in Illinois, Cook County, come on, we're kind of famous. Seven out of eight governors mm -hmm. in a row go to prison. So um, yeah. there's no there's no faith in any of them. So it, it created these things. I mean, the technology allows it. It's not hard to listen to a scanner, yeah. right? It's yeah. like high school journalism. Um, so yeah. all of that combined, and this was previous to Trump, and it's just gotten worse as crime and violence are out of control. But yeah. of course, there's no context to anything they say. Maybe I feel like that's we've got some of that here, but not a lot. Um, we are we're a much smaller city, obviously, uh, and a little sleepier. But um, I think that there is this goes back to the feeling that I had as an early reporter: is like you get a charge from covering this stuff, and I think that um, it's easy news to cover too because it always it just feels important. Um, I don't know what the value is of of like just doing police scanner tweets. I mean, I don't understand that at all. What is the what do you think that why do you think people are doing that? Like someone's got to sit there and type it up. I mean, it doesn't right. seem that qualified. They have very I'm sure they have very sophisticated technological uh, solutions for it, but to that I don't know why they're doing it, but they're heavily 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 followed and heavily tweeted and retweeted. Well, right. part of it is it's it's one of the things that people in cities are obsessed with. Crime, education, are the are, I think mm -hmm. are big. Um, the other problem really comes back to coverage, and it's what you've alluded to, is we don't if we're only covering that moment, we're not covering the sort of what led to that moment, the where maybe Charles Welfer entered the picture, or the school kind of let you down, or um, you know the foster care system or whatever. We don't hear from those people. We don't hear the other story that we, those aren't sources in those stories. We don't hear about the economic impact that some, something had on somebody. We don't hear about the impact of like a minimum wage job or whatever. I guess what I'm trying to say is like those things should are part of crime that create crime, but they're not part of the crime beat. And those things need to be incorporated in the beat. And then we would get less crime scanner stuff or, uh, and more stuff about more interest in like, you know, the schools or what they're doing, or maybe, maybe not, I don't know, or child welfare. I mean, there's some, there's some agencies and cities that don't get covered at all. Mental health, child welfare systems, they rarely get covered. Um, and, and they fuel a lot of this. There's a lot of, that's what, I mean, at least that's what I found is that there's a lot of people with unexamined grief. Um, they don't get to go to therapy. They don't have, can't afford therapy. They have PTSD. They have um, just issues with abandonment, with trauma um, that don't get explored. And that's a big part of this. You rarely see coverage that's nuanced that, that includes those factors into the police beat. But if you don't have them, you're just going to have this kind of coverage. Right. And I have argued that. And I want to bring up the point because you talk about connecting other beats to crime. Um, yeah the crime beater police beat in your piece in the Columbia journalism review. But I don't understand the media has failed at connecting. 
and fails repeatedly at connecting the dots of the votes at city council in Chicago or even here in DC, those votes and how that distributes resources um, for mental health, drug treatment, um, economic economic investment, how that connects to what's going on. Like any story in Chicago or any urban center, specifically because we're talking about Chicago, that talks about the increase in violence and crime since the pandemic has to talk about the pandemic, has to talk about the economic insecurity that's come about, has to talk about the housing insecurity, and has to talk about the medical insecurity. How you don't wrap those up and what's going on with an increase in violence that was totally out of the blue and unexpected, I don't understand how you do that. Yeah. Um, it, these are hard stories to do, but they also, that comes back to an editor saying, hey, you just talked to the cop source. Now you need to go talk to the school social worker. You need to go talk to the parents. You need to talk to um, the parole officer or whatever. Like you have to dig a little deeper to get that story. You have to, I mean, in, in DC, it's the same ward has been the most violent ward for decades. And no one has figured out why, no one's written why. It's also the most economically devastated of all the wards. It's the poorest ward, the least powerful ward, and the most violent. Those are not coincidences. I mean, but it's always just, you know, number of shootings in that ward. When COVID hit, I knew that that ward was going to get it. And they have not a lot of people, but they have the most deaths of any war in the city. And it was obvious that it was going to happen. And the mayor did nothing. So, you know, um, yeah. but they're connecting the dots. But that comes from they management, have... too. That comes from... Oh, no, I, I think that's 100% management. They have built up the infrastructures on their websites and internally that I know of, tracking crime and shootings and violence and all these yeah. data points in the police departments. It's like, where are those economic data points? Where's your infrastructure on the economics and on the votes and on the schools and how all that goes in so you can put those into your stories and have them reasonably available for you. But that's just not, um, because we have a whole class of politicians in Chicago that have just skated completely free for 10, 15, 20 years on the votes and the impact their votes have devastated areas. You talk about your mayor, but I mean, the same thing in Chicago, it's the same same six zip codes. Right. We know yeah. exactly where all this violence comes from. And it's been there for 20, 30, 40 years and nothing yeah. changes. And everyone's like, well, why don't they just make better decisions? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, I remember there was an interview with Alex Kolowitz where he's talking yeah. about this and he was talking about all the, the economics, the investment that left over time and has never come back. And that's a huge factor. And so right. um, it just doesn't, it's not talked about. No, it isn't. Okay. We're going to wrap up. Jason, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being with us. Of course. Um, thank you so to much. To our audience, this will be posted on our YouTube channel um, later on today. Um, there will also be clips on our YouTube channel. Check out our Chicago Justice podcast who has McDumkey uh, from ProPublica featured this week. And we'll be back with you next week with I think Deborah Witzberg from the Deputy Public Inspector General for Public Safety, who I think is our guest next week. All right, thanks again, Jason. Take it easy and stay safe. You too. Thanks a lot.